Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in New York. And I'm Timothy Revel, also in New York. This week on the podcast, Why Pythagoras Was Wrong About Music, How to Wrap Your Brain Around the Concept of Nothing, and The Trick to Making Friends with Dogs. Plus new research on a poop-based climate solution. But first, an update from the ever-shifting arena of personalized medicine. That's the idea that you would get better health care if it's tailored to your individual genetics, whether that's a medication dosage or even what health risks should be your priorities. This idea of personalized medicine has been around for some time, and it promises or has promised to completely revolutionize healthcare. But our first story today is about how that revolution may be a little delayed and even a little overhyped. Medical reporter Claire Wilson is here. Hey, Claire. Hello. So this precisely targeted healthcare revolution, what's the latest with it? Where is it? What's going on? Why can't I find it? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Um, We've been hearing so much about this idea pretty much since the launch of the Human Genome Project. And the first draft of that came out in 2001. And it's supposed to be the future of medicine, right? But last month, we heard some surprising news. 23andMe, kind of the, the poster child for consumer genetic testing, has hit financial difficulties. And the firm's share price has really tanked lately. It's fallen by 96% compared with in 2021. Oh, wow. That's such a drop in kind of a short period of time. And I I do remember, as you said, 23andMe was the poster child. But is it just one company having difficulties? Or is this more of a sign that genetically personalized medicine might itself have been a bit overhyped? Mm, Somewhat overhyped, I would say. So if you look at the initial hopes that being able to decode the human genome would lead to powerful disease prevention strategies for large subsets of people. Well, that's not yet happened. 20 years ago, the idea was that all we had to do was find the gene variant that causes a certain medical condition, maybe like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia. And the idea went that that this would give you a quick way to diagnose the condition if you didn't already have a way to do that. Or you could tell prospective parents if they carry a version of the gene. And that would mean for some conditions, if two parents each carry one gene, their children have the disease. So that could warn parents about that. And for treatments, well, if you're lucky, you might even be able to change that gene. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if not, 
well, just knowing what protein that gene makes and how the the disease variant is different, that might give you a handle to uh, develop an, just an ordinary medicine that reverses its effects. And you can use your genetic tests that you have to know exactly who would benefit from these specific medicines. So that was the hope. And it all sounds so reasonable on the face of it. So why hasn't that happened? Hmm. Well, it has for a few diseases. Some conditions have gene therapies available now, for sure. And certainly genetic diagnoses are possible for some diseases. We recently had a genetic treatment for sickle cell anemia become available, for instance, thanks to the gene editing technique CRISPR. But there's a big, big hitch in this logic. In the last decade, we've discovered that medical conditions caused by a fault in just one gene are actually very rare. They probably account for just one or two percent of all the medical conditions that affect humanity. So most common medical conditions like heart disease, diabetes, depression, they're influenced by hundreds of gene variants, each with a really small effect on your likelihood of getting that disease. And that means, sadly, that there are usually no quick genetic fixes. Uh, quite the snag. Does that mean mm-hmm. that we have to give up entirely on understanding the genetic influences on disease well, or is it just a bit more complicated? Yeah, no, no, it doesn't mean we should give up, of course. But yeah, it's turned out to be a lot more complicated than we initially hoped. But I mean, there has been some progress recently with it becoming possible to identify for an individual the hundreds of genetic variants. So uh, researchers have developed really complicated equations that allows them to you know, find out all those genetic variants and calculate someone's overall genetic risk for certain conditions. And that's known as a polygenic risk score. I mean, a score is a number that sounds very precise and useful, mm-hmm. though. So does that get us back on the personalized medicine train? Mm, well, these scores aren't <laughs> as useful as you might imagine. So any resulting prevention measures are still similar to general health advice for everyone. So, for instance, one of the commonest examples that are given for why polygenic risk scores should be useful is the example of type 2 diabetes, quite a common condition. You can calculate someone's polygenic risk score for type 2 diabetes and tell someone that, oh, no, your, your score, your polygenic risk score is higher than average for someone of your sex and age and ethnicity. And then doctors can give health advice. Well, what is the advice that they would give to try and reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes further? Well, the doctors will say, right, you should uh, eat healthily, get some exercise and don't whatever you do smoke. I mean, come on. When has (laughs) any doctor anywhere ever said something different to that for everyone? So while we're at a place where some people absolutely have been helped by genetic tests, we still seem to be quite a way off from those tests improving healthcare for most people. Next, we've got news that the ancient Greek philosopher, mathematician and all-round triangle enthusiast Pythagoras was completely wrong about music and why we think it sounds so good. News editor Jacob Aaron is joining us from London. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Anne. So is this story saying that it's now time for me to throw away my limited edition Pythagoras vinyl? Well, I'm afraid it just might be. Uh, so <laughs> this is a, a great story by our reporter, Chris Stokel-Walker, looking at a long-held belief that the most pleasant-sounding combinations of musical notes follow strict mathematical rules. And it's often said that this was first noticed by Pythagoras, although really there's so much myth and legend about all of his work that it's hard to say whether that's true. 
Yeah, even um, Pythagoras's theorem, it certainly wasn't him who got there first. And it's not really clear if he ever even proved it at all. But let's play along for a bit. Can you remind us what it is that Pythagoras is meant to have said about music? In short, he said that musical instruments should be tuned so that the ratio between note frequencies are all formed of whole numbers. For example, a three to two ratio. The story goes that he came to this conclusion by walking past a blacksmith shop and noticing when the sounds of the hammer banging on metal sounded pleasant and when it didn't. To put that a bit more concretely, so if the note A, which musicians often use to tune their instruments, has a frequency of 440 hertz, a note that sounds good with it might be 660 hertz, which is an E. And those two frequencies are in a 3 to 2 ratio, and that's also known as a perfect fifth. These perfect ratios, Pythagoras said, produce the most pleasing sound, and in fact this idea has influenced Western music for millennia. You can hear it in action in this piece from the Austrian composer Franz Schubert. I do love some chipper piano music, uh, but Jacob, you're saying this is actually wrong. I shouldn't like this? Uh, not that you shouldn't like it, but that it's not a uh, a universal truth that, that this is mm. the most pleasant sounding music. Um, so this is according to surveys of over 4,000 people in the UK and South Korea. We've long known that non-Western musicians use other kind of tunings in their instruments, and these are often ones that Pythagoras would have looked down on as less than mathematically perfect. For example, here is the Indonesian bonang, which can create harmonies that you can't produce with a Western piano. I liked that one too, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's a a slightly more sort of ethereal sound than the piano, but not unpleasant, I would say. So Peter Harrison at the University of Cambridge and his colleagues asked people to listen to musical chords and rate how pleasant they seemed. It turned out that they actually preferred the so-called imperfect ratios, where the ratio between two notes might be fractional. And when asked to listen to instruments from around the world with a range of tunings, people had no particular preference for any one kind of harmonies. All right. I spent many years playing the viola in my youth, and I have to say I had to work really hard to understand all the mathy music theory of what made different, again, Western scales work. So can I go back in time and reassure my younger self that the entire basis of all of that maybe isn't so useful? I mean, it's definitely useful if you're performing Western music and (laughs) and will continue to, to be so. But I think, you know, Harrison's saying that the findings show that the mathematical basis for Pythagoras or, or whoever it was argument might have led people to use it as a way of asserting the superiority of Western culture as this kind of universal truth rather than a subjective preference. And actually, as their research shows, it seems that human perception of harmony is far, far more varied. After you're done taking in some of the most important science and technology news of the week, why not head to Mars? TV columnist Bethan Ackerley asks astronaut Garrett Reisman and planetary scientist Tanya Harrison what it will take to get humans onto the red planet. And that's all in the wake of the Apple TV series for all mankind. And for a different kind of vacation, our next escape pod is coming in hot with an episode all about warmth, how bees can generate an incredible amount of heat, what we can do with the geothermal heat of our planet, and how to generate emotional warmth with a robot. That's coming on Tuesday. The following message is sponsored by the UK Department for Business and Trade and the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA. 
In the second in our sponsored series exploring how the UK has transformed its ecosystem for clinical trials, we meet Professor Andrea Manfred from the MHRA. We ask how his team is delivering one of the biggest overhauls of UK clinical trial regulations in 20 years. Available free at newscientist.com slash podcast. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to have your brain melted? If you've ever wondered about the origins of the number zero or how our brains deal with the very abstract concept of nothing, well, there's new research tracing it back to our animal roots. Yes, this is another math story, but it is also about our brains. And our reporter in Australia, James Woodford, wrote about it this week, starting with the idea that there's more than one way to think about nothing. Hey, James, how's it going? Yeah, hey, Christy. Thanks for having me on to talk about, well, nothing. <laughs> well, it's not just nothing, but it's like all the different kinds of nothing, right? So, so what's going on here? Well, essentially, there's two kinds of zero or nothing the first is when there is literally nothing, you know, as in an absence of something like nothing in a box, no animals in the park, no money. In other words, when something is not present. And the second kind of nothing is the actual number zero, the famous oval-shaped numeral, which is a true achievement of the human mind and also a cornerstone of some of our greatest accomplishments as a species, such as calculus, literature, and philosophy. Just those things. All right. I can see why researchers would want to try to understand where nothing came from. But how do you go about as a scientist to actually tackle that problem? Okay, so Benji Barnett from University College London ran experiments on 29 human subjects using magnetoencephalography, which is a very hard to say word for a scanner that's colloquially called a MEG. And it records the magnetic fields produced by people's brain activity. In the first experiment, the subjects were asked to compare different numbers of dots from no dots to five dots. While in the second experiment, they performed rough calculations using numerals, zero to five. The results were then fed into a machine learning algorithm. Okay, so let me stop you there for a sec. Basically, what you had was two experiments looking at, again, the two kinds of nothing. So when something is absent, as in no dots, and then the actual number zero to represent no dots. Exactly. 
All right. And what did they find in these Meg readings of brain activity? So here's where it gets really incredible for me. Scientists have long known there are neurons in the brain that respond specifically to seeing a one or a two. So there are neurons that have the biggest response when they see a one, a two, and so on until nine. They've also long known that these neurons are next to each other in the brain and form what's called a neural line. So the neurons for the number one are next to those for the number two. And when it came to zero, the study revealed that the neurons that fire are the ones closest to the number one. The researchers were also looking for any similarities between the brain's response to the numeral zero and a blank space without any dots. And they found that both activated the same brain pattern linked to nothingness. We know that other animals respond with a similar neural firing pattern when they are confronted with an absence, like when an antelope looks around and observes an absence of dangerous predators. Mm -hmm. But we are the only animals who use numerals. And the fact the zero and nothing elicit the same neural reaction implies that the number zero may have first evolved from a perception of absences. And again, that may be absence of predators or maybe absence of food or even the absence of a weather condition like rain. All right. So James, what you're saying is that one of the most abstract concepts in human thinking, one that we can tie to some of the most sophisticated things we've ever done, all of that may come from really basic animal roots. So then we know that the number zero and an actual nothing generate the same response in our brains. Is there anything we can do with that beyond, again, go back and philosophize about our so-called sophistication? Well, apart from it being a fascinating result, there are actually a significant number of people whose brains struggle to process numbers, and especially zero. One study found that around 15% of people who have a stroke also lose the ability to deal with zero. Barnett says that one day he hopes that this work may help such people. This next one is for anyone who has ever met a dog and wanted to be its friend, which I'm guessing might be quite a few people listening. <laughs> and you too, Christy. <laughs> and Sam Wong is here with new research on how to make friends with dogs without petting them or giving them treats. Hi, Sam. Hi. Sam, I have to say, personally, I'm a bit of a reluctant animal friend. I love animals and the ones I'm friendly with, I'm very friendly with, but I tend to like a bit of a slower introduction, you know, just like I would with a person. Perhaps we start with a handshake. Didn't you befriend a crow once? I did once befriend, befriend a crow, but slowly. And with a handshake. Yeah, with, yeah with, a, with a handshake, I gave it some food. It, it then became my friend over some time. And so, you know, with humans, I tend to prefer a handshake rather than going straight for the lick of the face, which in my experience is what dogs want to do. They're very friendly right from the off. So I guess what, I, what I'm trying to ask with all of this is, do we really need a new trick to become pally with dogs? They seem to be pretty keen to be our friends to begin with. Yeah, I mean, with some dogs, befriending them is not much of a challenge, it must be said. You can just you know, look at them and, and stroke them, and that seems to work. Uh, but lots of dogs are very wary of strangers, and they might feel threatened if you approach them or touch them. So Angélique Lamontagne at uh, Aix-Marseille University in France and her colleagues, they wanted to explore ways of encouraging these more wary dogs to be your friend. And that works. 
there's a way to do it? Yeah, so they tested something that they call behavioral synchronization. And that basically means that you follow the dog around. You stay close to it and you go where they go. So they tested 32 pet dogs from a range of breeds in a field with their owners nearby. With half of them, one of the researchers, who they'd never met before, spent 15 minutes synchronizing with the dog. So they stayed by their side the whole time. And for the other half, the person kept their distance and moved around in an unsynchronized way. They kept changing directions and changing speeds, that kind of thing. And after the 15 minutes was up, in each case, the person called the dog over and spoke to it for 10 seconds and then started walking off in a straight line without talking to the dog. <laughs> uh, and the dogs in the first group stayed close to the person after they walked off. They followed them. But the dogs in the second group generally didn't. And they were in more, more of a hurry to go back to their owner. So let me get this right. The idea is that you follow a dog around and then your friends. I mean, that would be really weird if I tried to do that to a human, I have to say. I don't know. I, I think that's interesting and it makes perfect sense. You know, I've seen when a dog meets a new dog and they want to be friends, they do usually follow them around. They chase each other. I mean, I love to stalk a dog park and that's half of the joy is just watching dogs make friends with each other. Yeah, it's um, behavioral synchronization is actually a really common thing in many animals. They mirror the movements and the actions of others in their social group, which might be uh, by following their movements, or it might just be by yawning or scratching. So it's a way of creating familiarity with a dog without having to touch them or give them toys or food. And I imagine there must be something useful about knowing how to make a dog be your friend and, and you know, get it to follow you in specific situations that could be pretty useful. Yeah, very much so. So yeah, if you're working with um, sheltered dogs or strays, for example, or there's a dog that's lost its owner, you know, it might be dangerous to try and just grab them. So it's useful to know how to make them see you as a friend, both for the dog's well-being and for the person's safety. Or if you've got a nervous dog and you want them to be more comfortable around people, this kind of behavioral insight could help with that as well. I feel like I want to also try just following people around and see how weird that gets. <laughs> Wouldn't be the weirdest thing you've ever done. <laughs> okay, Tim, so when I think about dogs, I also think about picking up dog poop, which makes me think about this cool climate solution story from this week. <laughs> Quite the segue. I take it there's poo also involved in this cool climate solution story? There is. This time we're talking about the poop of tiny crustaceans that make up part of the plankton population of the ocean. You may already know this, Tim, but plankton as a whole take tens of billions of tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere every year, which is why some researchers are, perhaps somewhat controversially, looking at feeding more blooms of plankton all across the oceans. But most of the carbon plankton pull from the air actually goes back into the air when they die or when their predators die and decompose. Okay, uh, so what's the poop got to do with it? Right, so the poop is the part of the plankton that does not go back into the air. Plankton poop sinks down. It's part of the phenomenon of marine snow, this drift of tiny particles from the higher levels of the ocean down, down, down to the seafloor. And once that little pellet of poop gets to the bottom, that poop and that carbon can then stay in the ocean sediment for centuries. But in the course of plankton's lifetime, there's no guarantee that the poop will in fact get to the bottom of the ocean. Sometimes it breaks up on the way down or it gets eaten by something that will put that carbon back into the air much sooner. So naturally, researchers have been wondering if they can get that poop to sink faster as you do. So I guess I'm picturing giving tiny crustaceans tiny bowling balls to eat, that sort of thing. Something heavy? <laughs> Not quite bowling balls, but in this case, clay. 
A research team tried feeding two species of tiny crustacean little bits of algae with bits of clay mixed in. And then they compared the poop sinking rate to the poop of the shrimp who were only fed algae, no clay. And depending on the species, the team observed that the poop pellets would sink two or even three times faster if the shrimp had been fed clay. Now, I will say this was a very small-scale study in a lab with, you know, aquarium tanks. But the researchers do want to repeat the work in a larger aquarium in Germany. And after that, they might look to test clay in the ocean itself. Speaking of good news solutions, uh, (laughs) we've got some good news about our algorithmic overlords this week, too. Oh, you mean the ones we have to please by asking people to rate and review our podcast on (laughs) Apple or Spotify? Yeah, exactly that. It really does help. (laughs) In this case, we're talking about YouTube and the algorithm that determines what videos you might get recommended to watch based on your past viewing behavior, which I'm sure you know has been found in the past to push extreme and far-right content, possibly more frequently than social networks that cater explicitly to the far right. Mm. But in 2019, YouTube, they wanted to do something about this. And so they made dozens of changes to the recommendation system. And researchers now have been analyzing the algorithm's behavior and have concluded that it no longer inadvertently radicalizes people. So does this mean that this is the end of YouTube as a source of radicalizing videos then? Not quite. So extreme political content does still appear on YouTube and people can still choose to view it. But what the work does show is that individual choice now plays a much stronger role than the algorithm's recommendations. So if you're just mindlessly following the algorithm, you encounter much less radical content than if you were making the choices based on your own preferences. And for what it's worth, YouTube claims that the rate at which people view videos that violates its own policies is currently around 0.1%, though they don't say how high that number has been in the past either. Mm. All in all, the research team says this is a good reason to continue auditing tech companies like YouTube after they claim they're making improvements. One point in time may not tell you enough about how well a change is actually working or whether one set of changes has done enough to mitigate something harmful in the long run. Well... How about a story about a different kind of audit out this week? Researchers have isolated 26 chemical compounds that are necessary to make an orange taste like an orange. Ah, is this 26 different kinds of sunshine as per the advertising? (laughs) No. Uh, We are talking about actual chemicals identified in orange juice, and these results come from nearly 200 different citrus juice samples. So they had trained citrus testers, that's a real job, taste not just typical sweet oranges in the species Citrus sinensis, but also mandarins, trifoliate oranges, and assorted hybrids like that. And these citrus testers tasted these samples, and they rated them based on how much they tasted, quote, like orange juice, which is, you know, the very essence of orange, etc., And the juices with the most oranginess, which is a word I just made up, had these 26 specific flavor compounds. Seven of them are organic chemicals known as esters, which seem to be key to differentiating oranges from their smaller, sweeter relatives like the mandarins, which include like tangerines, clementines, etc. And they also identified the gene that's responsible for those very important seven orangey esters. Is there a point to all of this? Is it all going to make orange-flavored chocolate cheaper or better or something like that? That would be good for me personally as a fan (laughs) of orange-flavored chocolate. I mean, I can't imagine that it would hurt that effort, but that's not the goal of the research team behind this work. Mm. They are instead looking with real concern, actually, at the citrus greening disease that's been devastating citrus and these sweet oranges in particular. Their idea is more that if they know what the flavor chemicals are that are most vital to an orange's, like, 
orange sole, they can then have better luck creating hybrids that are both resistant to the disease but still have the very desirable flavor traits of tasting, quote, like an orange. And that genetic information is actually very key to that, too, because it would allow them to identify successful hybrids very, very early in the process of growing trees, because otherwise you might have to wait 10 or or 15 years for fruit that you can then start sort of assessing for taste. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And you can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes. And you could subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're listening on. Plus, if you like the great stories we're bringing you, you guessed it, please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We promise to never radicalize you with our science recommendations. And we'll be back next week. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.